welcome to Business Lines Pulse podcast that tunes into all things health and pharmaceuticals. I'm Jyoti Datta. It's been three weeks now that the world's been witnessing the Russian attack on Ukraine and the humanitarian crisis thereafter. Recent reports from the region, that is, um, show that even a hospital, you know, in Mariupol has become a casualty of war. But humanitarian and aid workers have been reaching and have been either reaching there or trying to support uh, you know, people there um, with medicines, with aid, and uh, to the affected people. And our guest today is someone who understands only too well what it takes to work in a strife-tone region. So we have as our guest Simi Bashir, who is Director of Human Resources and Facilities with MSF South Asia. Now, MSF, uh, Medicines on Frontiers, or Doctors Without Borders, as they, as they are known, for those who may not be aware, is an international humanitarian organization. And uh, Ms. Bashir has been involved with handling a whole bunch of activities in that sense, from finances to chartered flights for their missions and so on. So let's hear it directly from her. Uh, thank you, Simi, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jyoti, uh, for this opportunity and uh, happy to interact with you on this podcast. So uh, like Jyoti mentioned a little bit about myself. So I've been with MSF, uh, which is Up Frontiers, Doctors Without Borders in English, for over eight years now. And I've been for both in the field as well as uh, at the back end office here of South Asia in my current role as Director HR and Facilities. So uh, Doctors Without Borders is an international medical humanitarian organization, and we uh, provide medical care to our beneficiaries in over 70 countries in the world. And uh, as we all know, uh, hundreds of health structures belonging to or supported uh, by the Ministry of Health needs support in humanitarian crisis, which we are witnessing lately, of course, at an escalating scale. Right. So, uh, yes, talking a little bit about that, we all feel that, you know, when we talk about medical care, there is, you know, always we talk about doctors and the various specializations and the medical activities which go on ground. However, there's a lot more than that. Logistics, the strategic planning, the tactical uh, planning, which goes behind mobilizing human resources, resources of all kinds. And like Jyoti mentioned, some of the activities which I was involved in, uh, like logistics and finances, fundraising, etc., there are mammoth exercise so if if uh, i may yeah so uh, yeah if i may um, you know ask you a precise question exactly on that so um you know when you have we know that msf has emergency teams in place in ukraine for instance and you've been providing aid there but how does it work not just for ukraine but uh, overall as you indicated when war breaks or when there's strife in a region how do you get medical aid there how do you plan for this it must be some sort of a logistical nightmare for most of us when you think because it involves uh, you know medical supplies people permissions and so on so how does how does the planning of, you know prior to going in work Well, absolutely. It is definitely a logistical nightmare because conditions are not normal anymore. People have to flee the epicenter of the conflict and humanitarian aid needs to come in. We got to make sure that critical programs, for example, like a drug-resistant tuberculosis program, which is already running there on ground, on which there are a lot of people who are there who need their medications on time, these programs also need to run. So, however, depending on the security situations and the permissions and the collaboration with authorities, 
we also would have to prioritize our activities. For example, not specifically of Ukraine, in any context like that, there are a few scenarios where we may have to operate out of neighboring countries. We may have to open warehouses in the neighboring countries or areas which are safe for our teams to function. We will decide to retain certain mobile clinics. Uh, for example, few key medical teams, core teams out there who can mobilize still um, be in touch with the communities, provide essential care. There's a lot of prioritization which we need to do on ground. Every activity cannot be done as it used to be. However, with prioritization, involvement with the communities, collaboration with authorities, depending on the situation and context, we do few of our activities and few of the key activities which are required. Logistics, uh, we do take support from existing teams out there and with our collaborations on ground, we do have a plans of mobilizing logistics to the neighboring areas and then moving into the country context. So it's not only Ukraine specific, in any conflict oriented scenario, then our emergency desk gets launched out there. So there are people who are trained to handle these both from medical, paramedical and from a logistic perspective. For example, uh, an office like ours located in South Asia here, like in uh, my current role, we also manage the operational HR part of it. Uh, that actually means preparing a pool of talented, experienced and qualified people from all categories, medical, paramedical, logistical, finance, administrators, etc. at all times like a volunteer pool. And then we know their background. Is he or she French speaker, Russian speaker, Spanish speaker? Where can we launch them? What is the national profiling like this nationality? And when I'm speaking, uh, it's South Asia. It's not only India, even though the office is based here. We are dealing with around 14 countries of South Asia. So it can be a Bangladeshi we are mobilizing. It can be someone from Sri Lanka we are mobilizing. Can this person with this nationality actually be deployed, for example, to Afghanistan when the crisis was escalated or not? So similar guidelines and checklists are already pre-worked and done and established for logistics, administration, finance, moving of any kind of resources. Yes, of course, everything cannot be planned as well as I'm speaking now, there are a lot of activities we undertake as the context evolves. Needless to say, people-centric care is the essence of our operations. So therefore, there is a lot of link with the communities on ground uh, on how successfully we can operate or not. Correct, correct. Absolutely. Mammoth uh, task out there. So for humanitarian organizations like yours, where do you get the medicine supplies from? Do you procure it directly from companies or is it from charities? Because there must be a whole, uh, you know, a range of medicines that are required. And like you said, it, it, it changes also maybe depending on the needs on the ground. Yes. So uh, I would not be able to talk about uh, every organization because every agency or organization has its own kind of procurement and delivery networks. So for MSF, we do have our centralized uh, logistical hubs in a few of our headquarter locations for now. And we have also decentralized it to various locations. For example, in Kenya, we have a, a, a logistical warehouse talking of logistical supplies. Talking specifically of the procurement part, we do have, we do procure from companies. And often on, we do receive donations as well. Uh, however, mostly we do procure. We are not too much into procuring locally in the context where we operate because of uh, quality and standards issues and also due to legal hazards. But we are also in the process of experimenting a lot of models of logistics and procurement because you see COVID-19 uh, and the adaptations which we had to do is also bringing to the forefront, you know, the importance of globally decentralizing a lot of these activities, logistics and procurement. Very interesting that you say globally decentralizing. I mean, they almost seem contradictory, but um, very interesting that 
you know you sort of have to change strategies as as uh, things move on how about the doctors uh, simi are they part of your organization or uh, do you also work with local volunteers as you had kind of indicated earlier also that you do involve the community how how, how about uh, the medical the actual trained doctors and the medical staff Yes. So the way in which we operate is actually by maintaining an international pool of volunteers. Even though we call them volunteers, it's actually a paid job in MSF. So uh, we do have a proper recruitment procedure by which people can actually get into our pools. Uh, so we have a kind of competency, skills, and technical uh, scaling uh, based on which we hire people, and then these people actually remain in our pools. and then they keep going out for missions so it actually means that if you're a specialist doctor you're working in india and uh, you have a commitment with your organization and you can work with us in maybe the month of july august september only then we plan accordingly so people get deployed outside uh, they're on our contract they come back and then they take a break then when another mission suits them they can go out so we do have a rotating pool which is also a very good healthy turnover mechanism for us it's not only doctors uh it's for every every uh, vertical of people whom we recruit uh, like administrators logisticians paramedics and uh, doctors of course needless to say i must have being an international medical humanitarian organization we do have a large pool of uh, doctors uh, talking only of the south asia region you know we have an active pool of uh, around 500 people of which 200 at any point will be doctors of various specializations because we also need surgeons we also need technicians we need general doctors uh, medical doctors anesthetists gynecologists you know we run a lot of uh, maternal and neonatal activities as well and we try to keep the proportion female male and you know profiles and various diverse aspects in order because we also have a forecast of you know uh, what are the regular needs which are there for which we need to use the school of course conflicts happen and uh, needs out of proportion also come to us but we do have a pool whom we can mobilize at a short notice you know all of this work that goes on behind the scene just does not uh, you know uh, get reflected we just hear of you know health and aid workers landing up here or landing up there and uh, and doing their job and it's it's taken for granted in a sense we don't realize there's so much mobilization that uh, happens behind it but you have also worked in the democratic uh, republic of congo where you were a logistician administrator which meant you handled supplies finances and more could you recount uh, what that involved and that experience absolutely and you just hit the nail at the right point eh so everything what goes behind the scenes does not actually get projected or gets the media coverage but then uh taking example of my term there uh, in DRC so i was deployed in the southern part of DRC and the project was pretty stable running uh, neonatal maternity wards everything and i can give you just one example where we actually ran a vaccination campaign against measles so msf does conduct surveys in advance and then we uh, based on that we organized measles campaign and other vaccination campaigns so uh, vaccination campaign is a very heavy logistical exercise these vaccines need to come imported into the country and these vaccines need to be preserved in the cold chain at the right temperature so uh, these vaccines are normally between 2 to 8 degrees celsius and we are talking of a context where you know refrigeration running water electricity is not something which you have at ease huh? so uh, what really happens is you have an array of technical logistics stations who will be coming with these kind of equipments fridges refrigerators etc now that's that was part of my team only as a logistician we maintain them 
and what are the transportation needs you know you you are actually going to have a campaign in one of the very remotest areas huh? so how do you transport it trucks don't go there are no hard roads you know i mean and there is no helicopter service where you can airdrop these in most of these locations even though we do have a short takeoff and landing aircrafts hired sometimes uh, in a lot of contexts uh, so uh, vaccination campaign example again you know i mean you uh, i remember you know we actually had some uh, motorbikes uh, which are available in plenty out there hired and we used to tie little little freezers and you know uh, behind these people and we used to ensure one paramedic goes out with them and then goes to the location comes back making sure that you know it doesn't fall down it doesn't break the chain or anything like that uh, importing supplies uh, maintaining them uh, this is also a herculean task training the staff who are available there for doing all these activities uh, but uh, to be honest you know in any msf project if you take we do a lot of training activities because ultimately it is also to capacitate the local community to carry on these activities it's not only the international staff who runs it it's actually the national staff who gets trained we work in collaboration with ministry of health uh, facilities there so for example in kimbi this was a project where i was working in the uh, south of uh, drc so we had a collaboration with a huge ministry of health hospital along with whom we conducted this campaign vaccination so we used to collaborate with them to have our supply strategy formulated and use their resources uh, of course we uh, strengthen their infrastructure as well from our side and then we train their people along with our own stuff and we do these kind of activities it's also something wonderful when you actually see lives being saved after all these you know what we do because we you know we are all really used to uh having a fixed framework in mind we we all come as a you know business graduates for example i also came from an army background where you know of course uh, we work in a lot of uncertain situations but there is always a plan b for a plan a but it doesn't work like that in humanitarian agencies in fact i must say this was also one of the reasons why i joined msf because while i was in the army i worked as a united nations peacekeeper in congo and i actually saw the way the small little teams of msf go outside and really save lives with such low resource settings because where there is the passion you know i mean you actually get to do things so uh, that was just one example mixed with my emotion as well yes so these are all logistics and administration are mammoth exercises to support medical activities on ground for us right in fact in your blog um, you know on your second assignment you've said as a flight coordinator in the central african republic uh where in your words you've said we did undergo some strenuous security situations and had to get a lot of things done in an emergency context could you recount that experience yes so there were uh, that was when i was working in central african republic and uh, this is a context which has been marred by internal context uh, conflicts and internal displacements uh, for decades and there are no roadways available and the only available means of transport uh, using which we can actually transport our people as well as our supplies was the aircrafts which we hired so there are these uh, smaller aircrafts which we hire from uh, some companies in this case we hired from south africa and we used to, they come with their own pilots and technical crew and my role as a flight coordinator was actually to regulate the flights uh, uh, in the sense we got to prioritize with our medical teams on ground what is essential now is it the supply is this vaccination uh, supply which is more essential to be transported or is it the person you know is it the patient you know who needs to be evacuated quickly to a surgical ward uh, in the capital so these kind of activities so coordinating it and making sure that the aircraft has the right payload and also you know uh, under this uh, safety precautions prescribed by iata the regulations 
etc that's just one part of my job so uh, there were many weeks in which our teams were in hibernation so we also have a security protocols to make sure that our teams are able to operate under safety and secure conditions especially when these conflicts arise there were massacres on uh, on the road and the airport was was actually surrounded so we had to actually operate from a place nearby and uh, we had to make sure that few of the flights had to actually take off and land safely and come and it it's really when i recall something you know something very personal which i recall is we we actually braved a lot of harsh situations when we had to actually uh, do a convoy of like 5 uh, 6 kilometers to the airport we didn't know if they would be firing on that day i mean of course we do have a collaborations with community leaders and all and we get certain kind of green lights on security that's how we operate however there were days when there were days when i was really scared there were days when the teams were really scared however we managed to safely evacuate back a baby you know a baby who had serious injuries out of a conflict we came back and uh, i i kept on very carefully following up with the doctor in charge if the baby was alive and up to 7 days the baby was alive so you know uh, these are kind of things which which really get etched in your mind once you do this kind of a humanitarian work because sometimes it's not just you know kindness or charity most of the times it's it's really an act of justice so i would say apart from the technical parts of being a flight coordinator transporting supply and people the essentiality of the service we were providing there it's really heartening and very much etched in my mind absolutely that's quite something very candid of you to say you know that there is uh... there is the feeling of concern for your own safety your own team safety and to feel scared and you know um, a lot of personal uh, what do you say safety at stake in that sense when you go out to deliver uh, aid in such regions talking about hostilities on the ground i mean um, you know we've seen not just now we are seeing it with ukraine but for msf we've seen it in the past with afghanistan yemen for example where hospitals and aid workers were attacked including your doctors um and you know days ago now um, we've seen a joint statement made by the who the unfpa and unicef uh, you know asking for attacks to be stopped on healthcare workers in ukraine so uh, in situations like this um you know when when they when you face risk your staff face risk how do you plan for something like this how do you protect your staff yes so of course we have uh... our own kind of uh, understanding and assimilation of situation because there is a whole a lot of work which goes in our emergency desk and operations management where we know certain parameters which are really really red flags we just can't operate there there are certain parameters which are kind of yellow when we can okay we can engage in certain activities but not all for example we can't just run the mobile clinic you know where we are not going to be in touch with our people however we can maybe you know uh, run some programs which are still running in collaboration with moh and we know there is safe space of course needless to say when uh, horrific attacks go against uh, humanitarian law and uh, it definitely has a catastrophic uh, impact on people and these are the people who are already vulnerable you know and uh, vulnerable by violence vulnerable by conflicts or by situations or by economic crisis take for example afghanistan like in 2020 2021 around the time we had our projects in like i think five cities also kunduz herat and kandahar etc we also had like in post uh, a very big uh, maternity hospital where the 2020 statistics for some reason i keep remembering that statistics it's around 37000 deliveries we did in 2020 and you see how important it is in a context like that i mean when we already know the plight of women out there so uh, when hospitals are bombed or civilians are you know often severely maimed or killed and those who survive 
what really happens is they completely lose their access to the medical help they desperately need. Now, our principles really uphold the dignity of our beneficiaries. And one of our principles is actually providing aid to the needy and medical ethics. So our aim will really be to remain there as much as possible and give some continuity of the activities. We may remain there for like few weeks uh, during which we can maybe do, do some kind of a handover, make sure that certain essential mechanisms are functioning. We may have to withdraw if the conflict is very protracted and we may have to come back after some time. There are uh, contexts where we have to withdraw for some time and then we come back also. Huh? But the work which we do in the communities is deep rooted and there is always recognition and we have felt that when when we come back also, we are able to start from the scratch again. So yes, uh, to be honest, yes, it's very unfortunate. And these combined statements reflect the same sentiments like, uh, and I say, uh, reflect the same sentiments as a humanitarian worker. Attacks against humanity uh, actually, you know, deplete the only hope some sections of uh, uh, humanity has. So of course, we need to work better on that. Right. Right. And in these regions, you know, um, there's one thing, the physical wounds, um, um, disease, trauma and all of that. Um, but is there, do you all also sort of provide uh, mental health support? Because, um, you know, that uh, you when you see children attacked or children have displaced, not just children, but even women and all of that. Uh, is there a need for mental health support as well? Absolutely. It's a priority uh, project for us to actually provide mental health support in almost all the projects we run. We have a well-defined and structured PSCU, what we call psychosocial uh, care unit, which actually deals with mental health support. And this actually uh, is given both in the field as well as in offices, because to be honest, you know, back-end offices like ours who deal with all this, when we have to make sure that somebody in Afghanistan has to come back, when we have to make sure that somebody has to absolutely go, uh, for example, to a country which is uh, undergoing a serious conflict, that's also a kind of a, you know, a, 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 that's also a reason where you need psychosocial support. And needless to say, the uh, situations in field really need it. Just to give you an example, uh, we have a very comprehensive uh, model of care for sexual and gender-based violence. And we have a clinic in Delhi as well. And psychosocial support is something of prime importance which we give. And uh, I think COVID-19 and the adaptations which we made, so we... Uh, have now modified a lot of psychosocial mechanisms online and digital tools, you know, wherein uh, even though with their full understanding while I speak that a lot of these conflicts will not have internet and electricity when uh, conflicts are escalated. However, there are mechanisms by which we try to develop very simple and light apps through which they can contact our PSU or support center, etc. And uh, yeah, there is a running mechanism and increased awareness in the organization as well on the need for psychosocial care. And it is a high priority for us. And we do, we have invested a lot in that. Right. In fact, you preempted my uh, next question, which is, you know, for the health uh, workers themselves or the aid workers themselves or the doctors going into an area like this or coming away from an area like this can also be very, you know, very difficult on their, uh, you know, you feel like you're leaving people behind and all of that. Um, so the kind of post-trauma counseling that um, you'll, you'll provide to your own doctors and healthcare workers as well. Yes, absolutely. So we do have a whole set of uh, briefings and debriefings, which include psychosocial care, not only after they come back, even prepping them psychologically before they go to the field. And I myself should say, like, you know, there were instances when uh, 
I felt that it is extremely helpful personally for myself just to know that I'm not the only one in the situation. And also, even if I'm feeling something in a certain way, that there is a mechanism, there is a person who will listen to me, there's a person who's going to guide me, come out of that situation. Because sometimes things, uh, you, you don't realize it at that point, uh, this particular uh, convoy incident, which I was mentioning about what happened in car and the baby being evacuated, it stayed with me for like many weeks, many months. Okay. And I could not have imagined a situation, you know, where uh, something would have happened, you know, which was kind of, you know, not in order, or I was just praying and hoping that the baby would just survive. I mean, so it was at the back of my mind every day when I wake up or every day when I go to sleep. I mean, it was there. And uh, I would say psychosocial support and talking to people who understand uh, these ways of functioning helps. It might sound like a very small and simple example, but things which happen in the field uh, and things which happen, things which we listen to as back-end officers, it does have a long-lasting impact. However, needless to say, uh, it's because we have that uh, in our DNA. It's because we have that passion you know, within ourselves, the adrenaline rush when we uh, get to do something for humanity and we understand the significant small little actions like this, even though we undergo a little bit of hardship on the field, it becomes extremely significant later on in life. Absolutely. Really brave of, uh, you know, all, all health workers and aid workers, I must say. I mean, I, I think that goes without saying it's... Uh, you know. So that brings um, me to my final query, Simi. Uh, you've been with the Indian Army. You've served with the UN uh, Peacekeeping Corps in uh, Congo. So in sensitive environments, how important and difficult also is it to stay apolitical and not take sides when you're, uh, you know, when you're delivering uh, humanitarian aid? It's absolutely essential uh, because uh, as part of the organizational principle, neutrality, integrity, independence, now these are key highlights of our principles of operation. And uh, you have to reflect it within as well. Right? It's one thing to have all these principles you know, on paper, reflect outside, but how do you bring it back to your own lives and when you operate? So the organization, now I'm speaking as the HR director, so the organization does give a lot of uh, dissemination of information and practical you know, hand-holding to people to actually understand it. Because it's, it's very natural, we're all human beings. So we're not superhumans or robots who just go there and you know, we don't, we just affiliate to a particular principle. I might have my political view, but at the back of my mind, I should always have that epicenter of importance. That is the beneficiary, the life in front of you, what we are trying to save. And for that, being apolitical, impartial, neutral, it doesn't matter which side is winning or losing. It doesn't matter, you know, uh, it, it doesn't, it's not important to disseminate a conflict and see what is right or wrong. You are there to save a life. You are there to deliver your humanitarian service. So. It is extremely important to be apolitical, to be neutral, to be independent, impartial, technically qualified, absolutely, and uphold your ethics. Absolutely. Fascinating conversation, uh, Simi, and I think we could go on if it weren't for the, the time that we're allotted. But with that, we draw this conversation to a close and we'll keep coming back at some point uh, to take these conversations further. But from the Business Line team and myself, thank you so much uh, for speaking to us and giving us just a small little insight into the mammoth task that all of you uh, do out there in delivering humanitarian aid. More power to all of you. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you and goodbye. Yeah, thank you. Bye.